What's going on, everyone? I hope you're excited and ready to enjoy another fantastic episode of Polos and Khakis. We want to give a shout-out to our sponsor, Nexus Sports Medicine. And with that, Nexus is going to hook up our listeners with a very sweet deal. Liz, tell them what it is. AT and MedCross patches are on sale for our listeners for 12% off. All you have to do is use the code Polos and Khakis. So that's Polos, the letter N, Khakis. Um, Dan, where can they get these sweet patches? You can find these patches and all other Nexus Sports Medicine gear and apparel at nexus-sportsmed.com or hit them up on Instagram at nexus.sportsmed. These patches are going to look sick on the new DV2s. I'm really excited. Get them while they're hot. Use the promo code POLOSNKAKIS. That's P-O-L-O-S-N-K-H-A-K-I-S. And if you forget it, you can see it on our Instagram page or our Twitter, and we're at polos and khakis underscore. Please enjoy this episode. Hey guys, it's Liz. What's going on, guys? It's Dan. Hey, it's Dr. Lee. I'm and grateful to be Paul. here tonight with you guys. Hey, we don't even need to give this man an intro. He just jumps in and gives it gives it to him himself. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Dan, do you want to tell us about Dr. Lee? Yeah, Dr. Lee is currently the Assistant Director of Athletic Medicine and the Director of Sports Psychology at USF, both of uh, Liz and I's alma maters for our master's program. And he was on our show a great while ago, a little over three years, uh, April of 2019, talking about mental health. And uh, we're more than happy to have him back on again. Dr. Lee, uh, always a pleasure to have you, and it's good to see you. Good. Thank you for the opportunity. I'm glad you guys got back into doing this. I think it brings a lot of good information out to the people that need to hear it. And I'm, I'm really proud of the, what you guys have done, both with the show and on your own since graduating and kind of moving on into the uh, next level of adulthood. It's, uh, it's, been, it's been a slippery slope, but I think Liz and I have both uh, found our ways and you know, here we are. I'm excited to be able to talk to you from this end of things because I feel like our last conversation I went back and listened to again and I had a lot of questions from a student perspective, but I feel like now from a professional perspective, there are so many other things that I have questions about. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I'm happy to answer as many as I can or guide you and, and the audience into the way that they can find the answers that they need. Um, yeah, so I'm, uh, we talked about a lot about mental health and just kind of that aspect of it, you know, a couple years ago. Um, and I think now we kind of want to talk more about the mental skills, mental performance, kind of how that profession has grown. Um, you know, now everyone in professional sports, top collegiate has a, a mental skills coach or someone they can go to to kind of go through this stuff. Um, a quote that you kind of let off last podcast with was kind of like, we know as much about mental health now as we do concussions, which I think was really, really interesting. And it kind of really puts things in perspective of how important this stuff really is. So, um, you know, we've been. We haven't talked to him two, three years. So, you know, where's your profession and kind of area of expertise been since then? Um, and kind of how has everything changed over the past couple of years with COVID and NIL and all that good stuff? Sure. That, that'll that take about two episodes, maybe three episodes just to go through <laughs> all that. Um, well, first of all, I, th I first of all, let, let's start with uh, the impact of COVID just to kind of go back chronologically. Mm -hmm. um, you know, COVID hit us specifically. We shut down and it was like March 19th. Um, and we were out of the office thinking we were going to be out of the office for a very short period of time. Our athletic medicine department wound up coming back the end of June, um, back in the office, working with our student athletes. And um, to the extent that we were able to be in person versus having to mask versus having to quarantine versus all of those kind of things, 
it created a whole new world for people to seek support and assistance. Um, I think, you know, I was, we were talking a little bit before the show and we were talking about the idea that before all of this, the idea of FaceTime and Zoom and, and Microsoft Teams and doing stuff video was kind of one of those things. It was more of a social platform um, and a way for people to stay together and just connect more in a, in a less serious way. And then it became the way of the world for a long time. Um, I think it opened up a lot of doors for people to seek help. There's a lot of um, new companies out there that are providing platforms for video-based counseling, support, coaching, all of the things across the continuum. Telehealth became a huge part of our lexicon, part of our industry, part of the work that we do, and has continued to be a, a viable thing. Back in, you know, back before COVID, you know, it was something that we were doing in rural areas only when they didn't have access or couldn't get to the kind of support that they need. Then telemedicine, telehealth, and, and all of the other platforms were the way that we got information out and took care of people that didn't have access. Now, you know, in, over that period of time, it became the norm, but I think it also allowed a few more people that were hesitant to seek support and help to kind of come and ask for it in a way that was comfortable for them. It was, you know, they can do it from home, they can do it on video, especially younger people being really well-versed in utilizing all these platforms. It made it easier. Um, so I think that's important. I think the continued destigmatization of asking for help um, was really a big uh, turning point during this time because there was nobody going through the, the things that we were all going through that wasn't affected. Everybody was affected. Everybody was affected directly, whether it was being isolated at home, whether it was being separated from family, whether it was you know, dealing with uh, older people in your family that may have gotten ill. A lot of people lost a lot of people. There was a lot of grieving for relationships and people in their life. There was um, general isolation that leaded to increased anxiety and depression diagnoses in, in all populations. It's just a whole thing that we were not prepared for really in terms of what that would look like. And, and now it's allowed for a lot more opportunities for people to seek help. So I think that one of the, for lack of a better word, good things that came out of COVID from a mental health perspective was people being more open to, to getting help seeking it and being not, you know, feeling like they're being stigmatized. Um, it'll be interesting to see how it goes in the future from that perspective. One of my bigger uh, thoughts or bigger concerns is I do think that because we were so virtual during that period of time, that there is a even bigger desire right now for back to face-to-face -face support and help and counseling. Um, I get a lot of requests from student athletes where you know, I offer both. We work on a hybrid model or we can do virtual or we can do in person now. And if they're able to come in person, they want to come in person. Uh, I think that's something that has been uh, undervalued in the past in terms of that personal relationship of actually sitting in the room with another person and sharing your experiences, sharing your thoughts and feelings and, and being vulnerable in a personal space as opposed to, to being in the virtual world. It's really been something that I've seen, especially in our young people, that they're starting to really value again is being together, being face to face and doing those kind of things. Um, and I think those are some of the biggest changes in terms of the mental health perspective. Um, one of the other things that I've seen is a change in our incoming freshman classes. Um, those young people that were home in high school during COVID had a whole different set of experiences than some of our college based people did. Some of them stayed here, some of them went home, some of them went back and forth. Um, but the high school kids that have come into college, 
the academic issues that they faced with being able to go to school online, what that looked like, what the benefits and, and liabilities were of that from an educational standpoint, being around friends versus being isolated, especially in those high school years that are really formative in terms of social relationships. Um, really interesting in dating and interpersonal relationships also uh, were, were exposed and uh, advanced in some of those um, needs to connect during that time as well. Uh, those are newer things that, that we're seeing more of. Um, I think those are some of the big ones, trying to help them make the adjustment. Those college young people that were hybrid, they were online. Now they have classes and professors that are requiring them to come back and be in person, but they really like online because of the flexibility. I can do my work. I can see the lectures when I want to versus having to be in a classroom at a certain time. And that helps certain students, that hurts certain students. Certain professors don't want to teach online. Certain professors didn't want to teach in person. And it just changed the way we do a lot of things. Um, yeah, I can probably go on, but I think those are some of the big things, um, at least related to the COVID piece and the big major changes. I have definitely seen a lot of people having the same reaction that you described that when the pandemic first hit, they were ecstatic about telehealth, that like they didn't have to leave their house to see the doctor and they really appreciated that. And now I call patients and then they say like, I absolutely do not want a virtual visit before they tell me anything else. They tell me that they do not want a virtual visit. They want to actually come into the office and talk to somebody and see somebody in person. And I thought that was a really interesting like transition that since since the beginning of the pandemic to now, we've like made a really strong flip, like you were saying. Yeah, and, and I think across settings, you know, in all of the medical community, that's been a bigger thing. I mean, going back, it was you know, that relationship with your primary care physician is, is one of the more important relationships that we have outside of our family and friends is who's in charge of our health care. And, you know, if I get on the, the computer and I've never met the doctor before, and, you know, we're going to talk about some personal things or maybe some issues that are going on physically and or mentally. And it's like, how do I even like know this person? How do I relate to this person? Um, and I think it did make it harder. Now, I think the, uh, the flip side of that is I think more people will seek care, too, because they don't have to worry about parking. They may not have to worry about babysitters for their kids if they have to do that. They don't have to worry about traffic. I can go from the living room to a bedroom or a separate room in my house and get that information and have that meeting without having to deal with all of those other things that sometimes impact the people from getting care. Especially for your profession where it's a lot of conversation based, you know, you're kind of trying to really set that, um, you know, boundary between you and the patient, you know, trying to be in the same room. It really, you know, kind of helps them, you know, kind of open up saying, Hey, like, you know, you're a really comfortable environment, you know, with yourself or, you know, someone else on your staff or someone like that. Uh, just to kind of help with the overall vibe and just how they feel about the whole um, situation. I think it was funny because Liz and I talked about on our last podcast of one of the things we don't like about um, the podcast now, I should say, uh, <clears throat> is just that it's weird not being in the same room. Uh, you know, the last time we talked, we were in together, and it's a lot easier to, you know, sense the vibe and who's talking next and who's not. You know, we're not trying to talk over everyone. You know, so it's just. I think it's definitely better being in person, especially at least in your field where, you know, again, it's really conversation based and just make sure you're kind of in a real comfortable space. Yeah, the, the thing to that I want to add is um, privacy and, and, and confidentiality, that piece. Some people don't have a place at home. They have 
you know, other members of their families living in their house, things like that, that part of it also is the privacy piece. I, I've heard people, you know, kind of hiding in their closets just to have a private space to have an open conversation. And I think one of the things that we do see more of now is like, hey, I don't have that privacy at home, or I want to talk about the people that are home and I don't want them to hear what I'm talking about if we're talking about families and relationships and, and dating and potentially kids and stuff like that. I don't necessarily want them to hear that and our walls may be a little bit thinner and coming into the office and getting out of that environment is a place where I can be free to do it. And I, and I think that that's another piece on the clinical side. And then in general, yeah, I'd much rather be sitting across from you guys at a big conference room table like we did the first time and just kind of going back and forth. But um, maybe we'll get back to that at some point. Do you notice any difference between your counseling athletes and your mental performance athletes in terms of like how comfortable they are doing virtual meetings versus wanting face-to-face meetings? I think that's a good question. And I'll go back and answer your question earlier, Dan, about mental skills and mental coaching stuff. I, I didn't forget, but I'll, I'll go back and answer that. Yes and no. I know that's kind of like the traditional like psychologist answer. Yes or no. I can answer both ways. But um, mental performance people, it depends. They like to do the foundational work in person. They like to go over skill building or teaching stuff more in person. But when they're traveling and when they're on the road and they're getting ready for an actual uh, performance, then they'll take it any way they can get it. If they can get you virtually the night before a match, the night before a tournament, something like that, before a big game, um, just to reinforce the work that's done, I think that's where you see the biggest difference. It's like we can do all the work in-house here and then you still have to go out and perform. So whether it's football going to a hotel the night before a home game or, you know, Obviously, all of our teams travel and getting on, on the FaceTime or getting on one of the, the platforms and being able to just reinforce stuff before they go to perform. But I don't really get a lot of requests, and I don't think it's the most effective to be doing it virtually if we haven't set the foundation first in person. Um, you know, I can flip things around like I have my camera on now, and I can show you guys one of the, one of the big things that I use as an outline. And when I utilize that on an individual basis, they take those skills, they take that knowledge, they may open up about some stuff that they're then going to implement at a competition. So we're really not doing, at least in my case, I'm really not doing anything new once they're getting closer to performance time. That work needs to be kind of backed up in between. So even a, a baseball, softball situation where they play like the three game sets on the weekends, we're installing stuff on Monday or Tuesday if we need to make you know, any kinds of, of transitions or tweaks to anything because we're coming off the information from the prior weekend. This worked, this didn't work. They're coming in either on their off day, Monday or Tuesday, early in the week. Let's tweak these things. Practice Wednesday. They travel Thursday. They're playing Friday, Saturday, Sunday again. So we don't really get a lot of time to do or install mental performance stuff on the road. That's more of a tweaking thing. Um, same thing with in-season versus off-season. I do more work with our teams in the off season to prep for the season. And then we're just making adjustments along the way. Um, so that's, I, I, I think the best way to answer that is yes and no, right? There, it's formative and it's, we can use it as a tool, but if the preference is to be in person to set that foundation and then they want the follow-up because we're able to at least communicate and do last minute tweaks virtually, especially on if they're traveling. Hmm. 
We uh, when I was in college, I played baseball, and this was I don't want to date myself. I graduated six years ago, um, from from undergrad. Uh, but we used, uh, you know, mental skills coach Brian Kane. I don't know if you heard of him. Uh, but again, like it was still mental skills was kind of in, in its infancy. So we would watch his videos as a team, you know, on a Saturday, you know, maybe every, you know, four, six weeks. We would take notes, you know, guys would kind of fall asleep in the back, you know, kind of things like that. And and I think it was great foundational work. But, you know, I think guys didn't take it outside the classroom and say, OK, what can I do to install this into you know, my routine or, you know, if stuff's hitting the fan and I need like a reset, you know, what, what can I do? And I think that's what kind of, you know, is the growth of that profession now is okay. Like now it's a legitimate thing that people from, you know, like I said earlier, from college to pros use, you know, again, getting that foundation and instilling it into, you know, whatever they need, you know, whether, like I said, routine or, um, you know, releases or just something that kind of, um, you know, positive thinking throughout games and things like that. You know, I think it's you know, super critical, but, you know, I think you hit it perfectly that the foundation is definitely needed. Yeah, you, you bring up a really good point about how it's functional and how it's being used across different sports. Um, you know, I think right now we're looking at Major League Baseball and, and all the baseball organizations certainly being the place where there's the most number of skills coaches involved in the game of any of the professional sports. And even more so than than the college level, and I'll come back to that in a second. You know, when you go back to, you know, six years ago or 10 years ago or more than that, when, you know, when I was in college, a lot of this stuff wasn't even around yet because nobody really saw the value in it as it was moved into performance. A lot of that stuff is psychological techniques and, and those kind of things. And, but nobody really saw it as anything other than a, a luxury. Now it's a necessity. Um, one of the things that I struggle with with how certain teams and every team does something different, the collective bargaining agreement allows each team in Major League Baseball to handle things differently, whereas major, whereas like the NFL, the NBA, and the National Hockey League have more stringent requirements and more um, expectations of what those things mean. But what happens is now it's become more of the norm where you have people on site and integrated into your practice schedule. You know, it's not watching a video on the weekends. It's the person's there. They're at practice multiple days a week. They're really integrated into what they do. Um, you know, there's one pro team that used to have a meditation group 10 minutes before practice started and five or six guys would get together in a room that was set off off the training room and be able to sit down and do a, a visualization or a meditation, a preparation, mental prep work before they even went to practice. Set your intentions on what you're going to do today. Do some visualizations of what you're going to do today and work on that kind of stuff. So I think the fact that it's become ingrained in the daily part of what happens, especially at the pro level, is, is a really good indication that there's, like you said, it, there's validation to the work. It does improve performance and it helps people deal with the pressure and stress of performing at high levels. The other place we're seeing it too, I mean, you know, our worlds are more focused around medicine and sports, but is in the business area and in industry right now. Um, some of the biggest firms in accounting and banking are hiring performance psychologists to come in and work with their staffs and their employees because performance is performance is performance. We are all performing every day in our lives. How do we improve our overall performance? That was one of the things going back for a second to COVID time where, you know, I was asked here by our athletic department to work with our, um, whatchamacallit, with our um employee people and our HR people, 
How do we help our employees during that time? How do we keep them in a good space? How do we make sure they have the resources and support that they need? So I worked really closely with our HR director for, for USF Athletics on programming for the rest of the staff. So it wasn't just our student athletes, it was our coaches, it was our support staff, it was our administration, et cetera. So we're also seeing this kind of also branch off into the business sector in a big way too. I think especially in professional sports, getting back to that kind of area where everyone's good at what they do. And it's just that, you know, it's basically, you know, I've heard throughout my life, you know, it comes down to the six inches of gray matter in between your ears. Um, you know, whether if it's that or, you know, nutrition or, you know, strength and conditioning, you know, just like anything that you can get to get that subtle edge of your opponent is big. And you know, I think that's why, you know, stuff like this is getting more and more prevalent, you know, in those upper leagues and you know, professional sports. Well, I think one of the things, and, and we've talked about this in the past, and, and it could be, again, another whole conversation is, you know, if we have all of these colloquialisms and sayings of it's the six inches between your ears and all these other things that people have said, how much time do we spend training that compared to the physical training that we do? You can spend hours in the weight room. You can spend hours on the field, fielding ground balls in the cage, hitting balls, things like that. But if the most important area is what's going on up here, but we spend the least amount of time on it. Why are we not training the most important thing as much as we're training the other aspects that make us great? So way back when, um, right before COVID shut down, actually, um, you and I were talking at, I believe, a baseball game um, about the difference between mental toughness and mental flexibility. And that if we kind of shift that verbiage of flexibility instead of toughness, I'm wondering if you work that into your skills performance also. Yeah, that was the that was the start of that idea. And I'm glad you remembered that. That's very kind of you. Um, I've done a lot of work on making sure that we teaching our athletes how to have mental flexibility. I mean, through COVID and everything else, the reality is, is for the most part, we're all tough. Anybody can be mentally tough because it means you can get through things as they happen. We're forced to get through things. Things happen in our life. COVID happened. It happened in our life. We've gotten through it whether it was easy, hard, up and down, back and forth, it's easier to be tough for short periods of time. But what it becomes is exhausting. And at some point, you're going to lose your grip. If all I'm focused on is being strong and being tough, then I don't have the flexibility to rest and recover so I can be tough again. Um, so when I talk about flexibility and what I've really increased in my talk about flexibility is when it's okay to kind of back off the gas a little bit, take that rest and recovery time emotionally and be able to have it when you need it again. Um, you know, you look at lifting weights, right? If you're doing a squat, you know, if you just keep going and going at some point, I don't care how much you have on, on the barbell, even if it's just the barbell itself, you're going to rep out and at some point you're done. So you can be strong for that period of time. But if I'm taking a little bit of rest and then doing another set, I'm going to be stronger in that second set rather than just repping out. So when you put that into the mental conditioning world or the mental training world, I can be dialed in and focused for periods of time. But if I don't get out of that, give myself some space to rest and recover, focus on some other things, change the, the atmosphere, change the environment, change my mood then how do you expect me to come back with full gas, ready to focus and dial in again? And that, that's where that flexibility comes in. 
Sometimes I have to be strong and just hold on and put myself in a situation that's going to be really hard. But what we, where we find that becoming problematic is the cause of anxiety disorders, because then everything has to be on all the time. And nobody, no human being anyway, is really good at being able to do that all the time. You know, we have those old sayings, if we go back to old sayings, like the best never rest and things like that. And that idea that more and more and more and those who can handle more and more and more and tolerate more and more and more are the best or the strongest, but they don't last. There's no, there's no um, duration, right? They also burn out the quickest. So if you look over careers, whether that's in sports, whether that's in medicine, whether that's in business, when you look at over careers, those that determine how to do that, how to find it's not really a balance, but but useful sequencing of how they're using their emotional and mental energy, I think have a longer career. Their endurance for things is, is much better. That was something that just stuck with me. It was something, yeah, it was something that I, it reframed a lot of how I was looking at my athletes, but it was also good for me in like a self-reflection standpoint that sometimes when I notice myself like you said like not backing off the brakes when I probably need to I like remind myself that flexibility is better than just toughness because like a pencil is going to break but a rubber band will bounce back and I think that's the analogy used and that has really that stuck with me in like a professional sense as well as like a treatment sense well I'm glad I'm glad it helped you and I'm glad you can pass that on to others and, and try to do that I've been using it so much now that I think it's also become part of our lexicon around here. Um, more of our young people feel that they have the ability to be flexible. They're not afraid of breaking or cracking or breaking down as much. Okay, if things are hard and you're going through it, you're going to have some form of emotional reaction to it. Okay, so let's allow for that. Let's give us space to honor that so that when it's time to gear up and go again, you can have some energy to do that. If we're just holding on all the time, then at some point, you know, that crash and burns has to happen. So from an athletic training perspective, <clears throat> in a setting where, you know, you don't have, you know, sports psychologists around, you kind of don't have the best resources in terms of, you know, what you do for athletes on a regular basis, how can we kind of introduce something like this, you know, whether if it's in a rehab setting or like, hey, Dan, you know, I need something during games or something between games or how can I, we integrate that um, into our profession and kind of add it to our toolbox and helping our athletes? So first of all, I think it's the framework that you offer. Athletic trainers are always, in my opinion, among the frontline people. I love what you guys do. I'm grateful. And you actually make my job easier um, because of the relationships of being there every day with your athletes, right? So if you start off by building solid foundations with them, building actual relationships, expressing care and concern first it's like doing an assessment right if there's a potential injury you guys are going to do some kind of assessment on what the symptoms are what the situation is i think integrating into your work kind of an emotional mental assessment it doesn't have to be a formal one it doesn't have to be like an intake that a mental health provider provides but doing kind of an ongoing assessment i know when one of my athletes that i see every day is off i know when something's up i know when they're reacting because you're around them but I think first off is making mental notes, maybe even jotting them down, keeping a little book for yourselves on different patients, clients, those kind of things about them so that you start to first recognize what's going on. So I think that's the first thing. Um, you know, one of, my, one of the talks that I give is on recognize, 
um, what's going on is the number one thing. Then we can talk about what to do about it. So recognizing what's going on, making mental notes, and then it's how do I approach that athlete with an offer of some things that can be helpful. You know, they're already most likely to be more trusting of you than they are of somebody in my world, a mental skills person, a mental coach, a sports psychologist, et cetera, because they're with you all the time. We're not able to be around all the time, especially in college sports, you know, where there's one of us for, you know, 500 people kind of thing. So it's A, recognize what's going on. The second thing is being able to say to them, hey, listen, here's some things I've been noticing. I have some ideas about some things that might be able to work. And then being able to tell them, you're not there to be the psychologist. You're not there to do mental health stuff. But here's some skills that you've seen work with other athletes or other performers in certain situations. And, and I think it's easy to stay with some real basic ones that are going to be really helpful really quick because it also builds credibility. So I think like things like diaphragmatic breathing, four count breaths for anxiety. It's like the number one thing. Um, progressive muscle relaxation techniques that you can teach really simple. You know, we got all these, these stress ball things that are around and stuff like that, but you can grab a tennis ball, you can grab something else and just learning how they can control their body to slow down the rapid heart rate and the racing thoughts that they have. So you can do those kind of things really pre preliminarily just to put it into your repertoire. If you're working with people in rehab, the pain that they go through on an ACL rehab, sometimes when you're trying to break down that cartilage and that scar tissue and stuff so that they can actually get range of motion back. How do we help prepare them for that? Well, I think taking a deep breath in before you're going to move that leg and using the, the exhalation of that as you're going to move it teaches them how to manage that a little bit as well, preparing them for what they're doing. So I think it's really easy to start off with some things like deep breathing, some visualization, like here's what we're going to do. Here's what you can expect. Let's take five or 10 seconds, see yourself do it in your mind's eye, give your body an opportunity to be able to know what you're preparing it for is another skill that I think is really good. Um, I think you also are in a really good position to monitor how they talk to themselves. There's a lot of negative self-talk that goes on. You're talking about a lot of people in highly skilled expectation positions that are also really, really, really perfectionistic. Um, some of us may be at times as well. And one of the things that we have to do is, okay, how do we talk to ourselves when we make a mistake? How do we talk about ourselves when we're in these situations? Because I think recognizing when you're having an athlete or a client or a patient who's got really negative self-talk about themselves and getting into the, oh, I stink or I can't do this or potentially worse, helping them just kind of reframe their thinking is another skill that I think you guys are in a really good position to, to, to kind of be able to intervene on and be like, you know, here's the deal. Hey, Dan, like I just heard you talking to yourself and cussing yourself out after that last at bat in this situation or one of these kind of things. And it's like, dude, you're being really harsh on yourself. Let's talk about some other ways that you can reframe that to make it a little bit less detrimental is really what it becomes. And again, you build the relationship. Have, you're going to be able to have that conversation with different clients and patients and, and players at times. It's like, I hear you cussing yourself out all the time. And how's that make you feel? Never makes us feel better. Like there is no time that I go, I rah, 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 all the stuff. We're going to keep this PG, but okay. I don't feel better after. So one of the other techniques that I think that may be helpful to you guys, it might be a new one for you that I'm also doing a lot of work with is neutral thinking. 
is how do we not do judgmental thinking and assessment, but neutral thinking, which is here's the situation, here's the task, how do I handle it? Let's be creative. How can I create a way to solve this problem, get this job done, instead of being judgmental about how I'm doing it, but be more problem solving or task oriented towards it. One of the things that I, I talk a lot about is it's much easier to try to solve a problem or make a change when your thought process is, I can create a way or I'm going to figure out a way as opposed to I'm awful, I can't do this and worse. So those are just a couple of quick things that you can integrate into your talk with your athletes at any situation and into your workspaces too. Because we know that one of the greatest causes of depression is negative self-talk and negative thinking. It's looking at the world as always kind of being dark instead of bright. But if we change the way we talk to ourselves, you know, it's, it's not necessarily the false positivity, like everything's great all the time. That's not realistic either. That's swinging the pendulum too far the other way. But I think this idea of neutral thinking is like um, every event in our life is not life and death. But another thing that you can do with athletes, especially if you're talking about rehab and recovery, is, okay, where does this incident lay between zero and 100? Let's put a real value on it. How important is it? How significant is it? One at bat if we're using baseball, one play in football, one touch of the ball in soccer. You know, I've rarely ever seen one of anything really determine the outcome. Unless it's the last shot of a PK in a soccer match, there are certain things where that plays out. But for the most part, if you've done stuff before that, you're not in the last shot of a shootout in soccer. So no one situation generally determines the outcome. So helping them kind of create some gray area, some middle ground between all and nothing thinking and creating this neutral thinking of, okay, I did this last time. I can do this this time. How can I do this better? What am I trying to do here? Soliciting support from their teammates, their coaches, other options, instead of being really self-deprecating. I think that's another really important tool that I've started to integrate more probably in the last year as a way to manage anxiety, because we're seeing a lot more anxiety because of some of the things that you mentioned really on the outset of the show of, of the changes in college athletics. One of the other things that you talked about in um, our first interview with you was motivational interviewing. And I was wondering if you could talk to us some more about motivational interviewing. Yeah. Motivational interviewing is a, is a, is a technique that actually comes out of the uh, change theory in looking at harm reduction. And the idea of motivational interviewing is helping people identify what their motivation for change is. And by, it, by figuring out what their motivation for change is and, and looking at the four stages that that encompasses um, helps us to determine interventions for the appropriate stage that they're at. So if we're talking about something like weight loss, you know, it's a big billion, bazillion dollar industry. You know, everybody's got the new magic diet that's going to get you skinny in five seconds. All you got to do is follow this, do that, whatever. But what's the motivation for change? If it's contemplative or pre-contemplative, yeah, I'd like to lose a couple pounds. I probably could be a little healthier, those kind of things. Well, I'm probably not going to do anything, but it's nice to think it about, and I probably should. Your interaction with that client or patient in that situation is probably going to be more around what would be some of the benefits of making this change? What are some of the things that you foresee that would be good things that come out of it? And starting to work towards making that change. So pre-contemplative stage, you're really talking about just the idea. There's really no action going on, but you get the client starting to think about 
what they want to do. Contemplative is I really think this is the next thing I need to do to be better, to get better, to be healthier, to play better. Now what are some practical things that I can do? And you're starting to move towards their motivation for change and working with them on helping them decide why they should make changes. Um, again, we see it in, in a lot of different areas, but on the performance end of that is, you know, you could be a golfer who has a, a swing coach that always taught them to do it one way and they got here doing it that one way and they get to the college level, they're playing college golf now and that way is not working on the courses that they're on or there's something that's getting rid of, you know, in, in, in the way of them playing well. And their, their new coach comes in and says, well, I think it might be better for you to do it this way. And their first response generally is, no, I got this. My swing coach that got me here kind of taught me how to do this. But you're not getting the results you want. So what, what would be the pros and cons of listening to your new coach and trying a new approach or a new club or a new grip or whatever it is, using just golf as an example? What would be the advantages of that? Well, I could get better. Oh, I could get worse. But it's really around fear of change. I've been doing this one way. So how do you get them to make those moves? So the idea, that's where motivational interviewing is more about assessing their readiness to make major changes in their life. I think you kind of alluded it uh, in your answer, but uh, just talking about how to, you know, willingness to change and things like that. So how do you get incoming freshmen um, or transfers from another school or even, you know, junior seniors who haven't really maybe been exposed to this kind of stuff? How do you kind of get them to buy into, you know, being willing to change and kind of look into something like, you know, mental skills or just doing something different than what they've been accustomed to to get them to this point? Really, really, really good question. Um, well, the first the first thing is, is you have to see what their previous experiences have been. Um, some school when we talk about transfers, right, there are some schools that do things differently than we do. They do more work. They do less work. They have certain people that come in. What's their apprehension to it? What's their previous experience? My first conversation with almost every athlete is like, what do you know about what we do? whether we're doing performance work, coaching, mental skills, all that kind of stuff. Like, what's your perception? Most of them that have not had an experience go like to the movies and TV where we're laying people down on the couch and asking them really personal questions on day one. And they're like, I don't need that to get better. But understanding what their preconceived notions are is, is, is really important. Um, I'm very blessed and I'm very grateful that I get a lot of opportunities to get in front of our teams and our new players when they first get here. Um, Obviously, every team integrates me and what I do differently. But for the most part, every team has an introductory session where I get to get up and do a, a 15 to 30 minute presentation on the difference between mental health and performance coaching so that they see that it's not necessarily the same thing. I get an opportunity to kind of change some of those preconceived notions or give them a chance to ask questions. Um, but most of them have not been exposed to it. The high school kids coming out of high school generally have not been exposed to any of the work that we do. So the first thing is to give them some education on what it is and what it's not, to clarify that and get that out there. The second thing is to learn their goals about what they want to do with their experience. How much better do you want to get? Do you have aspirations of playing at the next level? Uh, or is this going to be it for you? Are you just happy to be on the team or do you actually want to work towards starting and doing and playing minutes and being a, a more integrated part or productive part of this team? So you start to work with them on the foundations of just what it means to kind of think about themselves in the context of getting better. Because who doesn't want to get better if they're a competitor? We all want to get better. The amount of conviction, the amount of dedication, the amount of commitment may be different. 
but there's generally nobody that doesn't at least initially think about wanting to get better or be better. And if they do, we're going to have more problems probably the coaches will have more problems with them than we will because if they already know everything and they're as good as they're going to be, there's nothing for us to teach them, right? But it's that initial conversation. The other thing too is it's also being able to develop relationships before they become clients. You know, I spend a lot of time in our training room just walking around, talking to people, meeting people, creating an environment where, I, yeah, I may be the weird guy that comes in that we don't know who he is all the time, but He's going to come down and he checks in, says how you're doing. If you're going through something with an injury, we talk to you about that. If uh, if you're just kind of hanging out, just kind of, you know, shooting the, the crap about how your day is going, what's going on, showing interest and showing that it's not this thing that we have to hide upstairs in this back room and nobody talks about it and go and then just be building those kind of relationships of care. It's care and concern at the end of the day. They don't care. I don't know anybody, but I know with, with our, our athletes in, in, in general, they don't necessarily care what you know until they know you care about them. If you don't care about them, you can't teach them anything because they're not going to listen. Sometimes it's hard even when they know you care because it's maybe something they don't want to hear. But just showing them what it is before trying to sell them on buying into it, um, I think is incredibly important. I can't sell you on how mental performance skills are going to help you if you don't already think that I give a crap about you as a human and want to see how you can get better in general. So I think it's less about selling, at least in our world, in my world, it's less about selling them on it. It's more about selling the idea of here's somebody who doesn't determine playing time, doesn't take playing time, doesn't give playing time, has nothing to do with your scholarship money, how much money you get, if you get it. I have nothing to do with that. My only reason for being here is to help you improve in whatever way I can. On the field, off the field, personally, your life, your health, whatever it is. Then once you get that foundation built, then you get the curiosity going. And you start to talk to them or you go to see some games. Like Liz said, we were at a baseball game one time and we were talking about some of this stuff. And you go out there and you're like, oh, I saw you play the other day. And I was just wondering, it looked like you were a little tight doing this, that, the other thing. Like, what was, what was going on? What was your experience? And you're like, huh? And I say, I'm just out there watching, trying to observe, give you some tips about things that I see. And this is the world that I work in. If you're interested in more, then let's kind of sit down and have a conversation about it. So it's less about, it, it, I think it's less about selling a product but building a relationship that allows them to be curious about how you can help them get better. And then it's about showing them that it can be whatever they want it to be. If they wanna have counseling and they wanna get into psychological stuff or they have issues that are more mental health related, we can do that. If they just wanna stay with performance and learn how to do visualization and deep breathing and goal setting and some of the motivational stuff to get them hyped up for a game, we can do that. So it's almost like creating the menu of what we do so that they can pick and choose what they need. So I think that's the other way. And if, if we want to talk about the, the selling of it, it's like, here's all the things you pick. You want an appetizer? I'll give you an appetizer. You want a five course meal? I got a five course meal. You only want the dessert? You got to eat your, your veggies first. As I'm sure you guys can tell, this is not the end of our talk with Dr. Lee. In fact, we had so much fun chatting with him that we ended up talking for two hours. 
in order to make sure that we got all of that amazing information there for you, we're splitting this episode into two parts. So stay tuned for part two of our talk with Dr. Lee next week.